Hello, welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast. This is a Patreon-exclusive podcast, and we are talking about Pulp Fiction. I am your host, John Cribbs. With me is Christopher Funderburg. Hi, John. How are you doing this evening? Doing quite well. Quite well. That's some very good banter we have. After doing so many episodes, the back and forth has become so smooth. It's almost like we don't even know what we're doing. But today, we're going to be talking about a book called The Golden Gizmo. This is a book that is written by one of the titans of crime fiction, Jim Thompson. Uh, We wanted to pick for this one of his lesser-known novels, one of his lesser-known works, because part of what we do with the Pulp Fiction's podcast is a little exploratory. It's trying to go into things that we don't necessarily know so well, to go into uncharted territories for us and discover new things, right? Isn't that fair to say? That's exactly it. And this one is really unknown. I I hadn't read it myself. Yes. But then researching it, it's like, I don't think anybody has read it, actually. (laughs) Yes. You won't find anybody talking about this book in his biographies. They take up maybe a single paragraph. There just is no deep analytical interest in this uh, novel whatsoever. Yes. So I found that surprising. Yes. I found it surprising for a lot of reasons. The least of, not the least of which, is that I was under entirely the wrong impression about what this book was going to be going into it. We'll get to what that. Did you, what did you think it was? Oh, you're going to get into that. We'll yeah. get into that in a little, in a little <laughs> bit. Uh, I Just a little bit of background on Thompson, if you're not familiar with him. He was a writer of crime fiction, an American writer of crime fiction. He started in the mid-40s and basically his career continued through the early 60s to give a sense of the time frame that he was born into. I see him all the time as being referred to as a writer from Oklahoma. He was actually born in the Oklahoma Territory. He was born before Oklahoma was even a state, to just put you in the right mindset of when he actually got writing was a little later in his career. And there's a few things that I I don't, I'm not a Jim Thompson expert. He's somebody that has massive fans. If you know anything about Jim Thompson, there's a few like facts that always get brought up about him. One was that he worked in the oil fields of Texas. He was an oil man. Another is that he was briefly a communist in the 30s for a matter of a a couple years. The third one is that he worked in an aircraft factory during World War II and wrote at night, continued his writing because he's working in the aircraft factory. Uh, One interesting thing that I always think about with him is he was... um, I think he was the head of the Oklahoma Federal Writers Project, which was like a New Deal thing in the 30s. And he was Louis L'Amour's boss there, which I think about a lot, about like how weird it must have been the boss of like a incredibly prolific, uh, like sort of almost the definition of a hack, you know what I mean? And to be his boss. But that's something I think about a lot with Jim Thompson. Um, like a lot of interesting uh, genre writers, he also wrote for the tabloid newspapers briefly. And uh, I think about that too, because I know Sam Fuller for a long time was trying to do an adaptation of The Getaway. And Sam Fuller is like the godhead of tabloid newspaper reporters turned artists. And I think these are all the things that sort of combine together to give you a little bit of a thumbnail picture of Jim Thompson. Certainly when you think about Jim Thompson or Jim Thompson gets talked about or written about by anybody, 
these the, those little facts that I've just given you are like the things that everybody knows about him. His career is essentially bookended by uh, two books that are incredibly similar. The Killer Inside Me is his first real hit in 1952, and then Population 1280 in 1964 are like the the all of his important work is done between those two books, and those two books, I think most people would agree are also his two best books. Um, they're also incredibly similar. A lot of people say Population 1280 is a virtual remake of The Killer Inside Me. They're both about these um, outwardly ineffectual sort of dopey small town sheriffs who are hiding uh, like razor sharp intelligence and brutal psychotic qualities under sort of a mask of being like, all oh, shucks, morons, essentially. And they're very, very similar. Lou Ford and Nick Corey, the two protagonists of these books, are very, very similar characters, even though the books themselves are very, very different. I think ultimately, I think saying that Population 1280 is a remake of Killer Inside Me is not fair, uh, because they have very different sort of stories, ultimately, but they are similar sort of characters. Uh, Right, yeah. Yeah. After Killer Inside Me was a hit, in 52, he did five novels a year uh, in both 1953 and 1954. The Golden Gizmo that we're talking about today is one of those novels written in that spurt. Well, published in that spurt. It's important yeah. to note that this, this book in particular had actually been written. It was pre-written. Uh, he had tried to sell it to a publisher and it was turned down yeah. years earlier. So when he finally got the ball rolling, you know, he obviously he opened up his... Uh, his drawer and got out everything that he had, you know, failed to sell before and the publishers bought, but this one significantly they bought for less than his original stuff because he had let them know that it was a already rejected manuscript. So they paid him less than they, than they should have, but it did come out. It did roll out with all those other books between 52 and 54. Um, I will say the last bit of biographical info for Jim Thompson is that to a certain uh, portion of the film-going population, he will always be most famous for writing uh, Kubrick's, Stanley Kubrick's films, The Killing and Paths of Glory, is this is what Jim Thompson will always be most synonymous with. And to a certain, uh, to a certain subset of that subset of the portion of the film going public, he will always be most famous for getting screwed by noted egomaniac Stanley Kubrick out of proper credit for adapting the killing from Lionel White's novel. Uh, Kubrick famously gave himself a screenplay critic and, and Thompson an insulting dialogue credit, even though by everyone's account, Thompson did the majority of the writing on the screenplay. Uh, there's no there's no scenario in which he shouldn't have been given a co-screenwriter credit. The only scenario in which he doesn't get it is shameless, obnoxious credit theft. But they still went on to do Paths of Glory together, and they were even working on a third film called Lunatic at Large that never got made. So that is the setup of Thompson and who he was, to just give you a little background. John, when we do these Pulp Fictions, before we talk about the book at hand, we give our audience an aperitif selection, something that you can pair with this novel that we're talking about, going into it, an artwork to sort of whet your appetite, get you in the right mindset, get you on the right path, for reading the book and experience the book. So I'm curious, what is your aperitif selection? 
Yes, well, first let me say, Chris, thank you for that very comprehensive biographical background on Thompson. Very informative. Um, I'm a big fan of also. In the spirit of that, I'm going to point to an obvious selection from Thompson's uh, output. Uh, Thompson obviously had a lot of jobs before he was a writer. One of them was as a gold buyer, going door to door, buying gold. Oh, I didn't uh, know that. Yep. Yeah, uh, he you know, pretty much did everything, but he did briefly do that and turn that experience in, originally into a short story called Blood from a Turnip, which uh, showed up years later in a, book, a collection called Fireworks, The Lost Writings of Jim Thompson. So that was sort of his dress rehearsal for the Golden Gizmo. And obviously, if you, uh, you know, you're interested in his gold buying uh, period, <laughs> this is... Uh, that's the place to start, I think, before going into this longer version of a, or slightly longer, I should say. It's not a long book at all, but yeah, um, a, a longer version of, uh, you know, a, a protagonist who is a door-to-door gold buyer. Interesting. Very what interesting. You, what have you got for an aperitif? I said that you should read Lionel White's The Big Caper. Uh, it's from 1955, so from right around the same time as The Golden Gizmo. And Lionel White was the uh, novelist who had written The Killing, which Jim Thompson adapted uh, into the screenplay for Kubrick. So there's a bit of synergy there. And just to put you in the mindset of where crime fiction was at the time that Thompson was writing, because Lionel White is a very journeyman-ish undistinguished uh, crime author. And his books are okay. They're not phenomenal. I actually think Big Caper is his best one. It's about a young man and a, and a young woman opposing as a married couple while they prep a heist, right? That they've been uh, told by the person planning the heist. He's not a mob boss, but you guys go undercover as a married couple, get set up in this town to sort of do the surveillance and get this together. And the joke of this book is that they're assembling a crew for a heist and it's the best crew in the world, right? And they're gonna get them all together, that traditional setup. And then everybody that's brought in to join this married couple are creeps and psychopaths. And that's the good joke of it is that like a crackerjack squad of like arsonists and safe crackers, they're like, fish-based alcoholics and creepy perverts. And one of the late film twists in the book, which I don't want to spoil, where the protagonist finally realizes, okay, I'm not like these guys. I, this is going too far. When the their plan for like, and in order to do this robbery, we've got to create a distraction. And the idea that the arsonist gets for how to create a distraction is like, oh my fucking God. Like just as as grisly and upsetting as an idea that you can have. And so it's enjoyable to read uh, in that context. But if you read it, you'll also see where crime fiction was at. It is not a psychologically realistic book uh, at all. And there's something, there's, there's something that feels very sort of the tributary of crime writing that had started with Dashiell Hammett towards a certain kind of like uh, hard-boiled realism feels like it's drying up in Lionel White, like just nastiness and sort of realistic nastiness uh, not attached to psychological realism has gone maybe as far as it can go in Lionel White. And it's interesting too, White is also somebody who's interesting to read because his books were adapted by Kubrick and Godard, who made Pere Lefou based on Obsession. And, uh, and Reservoir Dogs is dedicated to him. 
which I always think is funny because I don't, I don't think he's read Clean Break. Uh, Reservoir Dogs is obviously very indebted to Stanley Kubrick's The Killing Movie, which is based on Clean Break. Uh, I don't think Reservoir Dogs is at all indebted to Clean Break. It's clearly very indebted to the movie. Well, Tarantino even said in an interview, right, the the reason he thanked Lionel White was because he wanted to acknowledge the killing without thanking Stanley Kubrick, so. Oh, my God. Well, yeah, (laughs) there you go. Um, A very very Tarantino thing to do. Yeah, but so read read The Big Caper. It's it's an enjoyable little book, and I think it'll get you in for the right mindset to compare, even in a minor Thompson like the Golden Gizmo, what a, a seismically powerful writer he is. Is know? White still in print at all? I know it's, he's not an author who's been like, you know, given a shake by Black Lizard or Hard Case Crime or anybody like that. I have no idea. I had to order, I, I have like four or five Lionel Whites and I had to order them all specially online. And like the, the copy of the big paper I have is like a, reprint that appears to be done by a very uh low rent company it didn't get like the super deluxe treatment it just got like the stuff some xerox pages into a, a thing and uh but then i have original copies of like big caper and uh obsession and a few others that are just like mass market paperbacks but i have no okay. idea oh i've got to borrow your copy i've never read lionel white uh myself so um he's he's fun he's perfectly fine is what I would describe about him. And he's best, that's his best one, Big Caper, and he's best as a contrast to Thompson and, uh, and other authors of that ilk, of, of sort of the interesting things that are happening in crime fiction in the 50s. So speaking of Thompson, the Golden Gizmo. Yes. Golden Gizmo is the story of but Todd Kent. Okay. Like, this will be when I say, I was under the impression before I read this, the entirely wrong impression about what this is. What I knew about this book, because nobody writes and talks about it, is that it's called The Golden Gizmo. It features some kind of a uh, intricate, perhaps uh, science fiction device type watch and a talking dog. Those were the only three things I knew about this book is that it sometimes gets referred to as the talking dog book. And so I thought Golden Gizmo, uh, strange watch, talking dog. This is a science fiction book is what I thought it must be. John, it was my going into this. What else could it be, John? Right. Well, I have to say that's three more things than I knew about going into it. But from the very first sentence of the book, we're told that we're going to be dealing with the talking dog here. So that kind of gets you, that kind of gets you in the mindset that it's going to be a little more surreal than his books usually are. And it is, it is, but not in the way that maybe you're, you, know, you expected it to be. I agree. Um, now what we're dealing with is Todd Kent, who is a door to door gold buyer, but also a career, uh, a lifelong short, short time con artist who has kind of gone from, one small crime to the next, never establishing himself, never having money for very long. He follows what he calls the golden gizmo, which is a GI term for the unidentifiable. And in Todd Kent, it's basically that sense that, you know, he can smell the money, the easy money. He can go to places where he thinks he's going to be successful and is for a while, 
but at the same time, it's kind of a curse. It's kind of his impulse, right? Sort of his uh, uncontrollable yes. urge to get involved in these things, yeah, which ultimately weird thing lead about it to jail. Is that gizmo to me meant like a gadget of some kind, yeah. like a high-tech gadget. And this, it means like an ineffable sense of something inside of him, which I've never heard it used in that context before. Never before. No, who knows if it's a real thing. It's one of those things I'd genuinely be curious to know if, you know, Thompson actually picked it up from, you know, uh, actual servicemen or what, or if it's just something that he just completely concocted. Well, it makes the calling gizmo in Gremlins gizmo more sense if you don't take it to mean tech object, but a sort of unidentifiable, ineffable thing. Right. You know, that was a GI, World War II GI term, like Gremlin was. Then it's like, like oh, Gremlin. That, yep. yeah, that makes Gizmo make more sense, maybe. So maybe yeah. you give me a great <laughs> understanding of Gremlins, this book, I mean. Right, I was going to say, I might be giving Chris Columbus too much uh, <laughs> uh, credit, but it could be. And his Golden Gizmo gets him in trouble. He gets money for a while, but then he ends up, you know, being wanted in Chicago, basically has to run out of town. And uh, his gizmo has led him to Elaine, who is a former actress turned boozy, dominating uh, harlot, I guess. <laughs> the best way to describe her. Uh, they get married because he, well, he doesn't find her attractive, apparently. He finds her completely compelling. And there's just something, it's constantly in the book said that there's something about her that just brings men to her, even though she's clearly a horrible person. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, she 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 brings Todd over to her. They get married. Uh, basically, the money the the what he's built for himself gets drained uh, into Elaine, who goes off and uh, parties and boozes and supposedly sleeps around uh, while he you know gets set up with a gold buying company in town. It's a uh, very shady operation. Uh, it's technically legal. But uh, what it is is they basically just go door to door offering to buy housewives gold from them and then just paying them less than what it is worth. It's pretty much the simplest con that you could basically have. And in this role, Todd comes upon the house of a chinless man who has the uh, dog that we're talking about, the, um, the talking Doberman. A giant who, Doberman. Who at first attacks Todd and then when he's called off by Alvarado says, sorry. I'm so sorry. So sorry. And so this is obviously through Todd's perspective. We, you know, he's the one who thinks the dog can actually speak. Um, It's never implicitly made clear. And I guess that's my first question for you is uh, when you got to the end of this book, was it any clear to you whether this dog actually talks or not? No, it's completely baffling. It's completely baffling what I'm supposed to make of the talking dog. I feel like the talking dog alone, it's one of those things that feels like he had that first sentence when he met the chinless man and the talking dog and then was, okay, where am I going with this? And quickly left a more fanciful idea behind to settle into a very Jim Thompson S story about a grifter and the horrible women in his life. That is like the quintessential Jim Thompson story is, is the, the con artist with true heritage in his life, shredding him to pieces. And 
you know, it should be mentioned up front. Thompson is, is an interesting author, but he's also one that you would definitely call problematic, especially through today's lens. But I think he's similar to like Patricia Highsmith in the sense that he cares about, these are not books that are misogynistic. They are books about misogyny as a subject. You know, it's not an accident. It's not like Hitchcock, where I think that he doesn't understand that he's making movies that are in part about how much he hates women. You know, mm -hmm. I think Jim Thompson is making books that the theme of hating women and why men and women hate each other is a theme of the books. Absolutely. And, and obviously all of his male protagonists, you know, have issues, very severe issues uh, with, you know, being emasculated or being, you know, mama's boys, things like that. They have issues with women that, you know, yes. come out not only in, you know, the women that they end up with, but, you know, the way they treat women and what happens to them as a result of these relationships. Yes. But so that was a roundabout way of, I, I just don't fucking know what it means that this dog talks repeatedly in it. Another common uh, tactic of Jim Thompson and something that runs in his work is he has unreliable narrators. Some of his very best books like After Dark, My Sweet, you're seeing it entirely through the perspective of a character who you cannot trust their analysis of the events that it's just that the main character in that book comes in, he's been hitchhiking out on a dirt road and everybody's treating him like a lunatic. And he says, I felt like I looked pretty good. I went to the bathroom and got myself all cleaned up. And you just don't know if he looks like a crazy person or not. He's an escaped mental patient and you don't know what he actually looks like based on how people are interacting with him. You get a sense that he doesn't have a perfect picture of himself, but at the same time, he's so sharp at times that you as a reader are off guard the entire time. And this book doesn't, it faints at that a little bit. It reminded me actually of another Thompson book, Savage Night, where there's just a general unreal quality that bleeds into everything. Savage Night is about somebody who uh, is, is a hitman, is what he tells us, who's also physically frail and his mind is ravaged by social diseases, right? He's who, tiny uh, and he wears uh, like heightening shoes, you know, he's like this yeah. tiny little guy who's trying Asthmatic. to pretend to be a tough guy. Yeah, and is he really a hitman or not? But there's also these strange sequences where it's like did he really just meet that writer character uh is he really what's the deal with this scene with the sheep at the end yeah There's well the scene with the writer character may be the most bizarre thing thompson has ever written i think the most bizarre passage in any of his books yeah well the talking dog is up there though this book yeah. has that same quality and of, i was hoping it would be yeah well, from that first sentence i was like this is going to be like savage night or even a little bit like the nothing man where you know there's just this kind of surreal quality to them those are two of my very favorite of his books so yeah yeah, I had that sense too, that like this is going to be off in a really interesting way. But the talking dog is the only thing that's off in this book, I would say. I would say mm -hmm. otherwise, it's very straight up in a lot of ways. I mean, we'll talk about this later, but it feels, here's my question for you, John. 
I don't know what to make of the talking dog. I think that's the only answer to this question. I think I've tried to approach it from a few different angles. But then it's not clear. That was the that was the question. So yeah. you agree? You agree? It's not clear that the dog is meant to actually. I, I don't even know. <laughs> I don't even know. I don't know what it's supposed to mean. I don't know what it's supposed to mean. I just genuinely don't know if it's supposed to be the dog makes talking-ish sounds and that's supposed to be really happening or the main character is projecting, if Todd Moore is projecting words onto the dog or Thompson is making a joke that isn't landing. I'm not sure. (laughs) And later on, the dog actually sings too, we should mention. (laughs) Yes, it hears a song. It chases him through a burlesque house and hears a song being sung in a burlesque house and starts singing the song that it hears well, in should, the burlesque house. Yeah. I, should, you, I should say this just to lead, just to lead into that. Um, when you say, you know, the dog is the only thing that's off, I think for the first half of the book, there's a pleasantly offness to it, you know, even yeah. though there's not anything as strange as the dog. There's a lot of interesting writing that he puts in there that I think... Um, especially in sequences, individual sequences, where it's like he'll describe someone's head bursting out in blood. And yeah. then, he'll, then he'll reveal what it came from. And then he'll reveal who did it in a really kind of deconstructed way that I think is really fun and fascinating. And it He's all leads to... a great writer. Yeah, no, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> but, 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 but I must say that this is so specific to the first half of the book in Los Angeles where um, Todd accidentally steals a watch from uh, from this guy, from Alvarado, while he's there at his apartment. A super co- heavy watch. Right. He realizes that it is um, a pound worth of 24-karat gold hidden in this watch and that Alvarado is somehow involved in a bigger gold smuggling operation that he wants to get in on. Yeah. Um, and there are various factions going on as well. He has some enemy gangsters who were after him and want to get in on the action. They want a protection um, racket and he's not buying. There's a exactly. few small timers shaking down all the gold dealers saying, if you want to walk these streets and take your gold and you got to pay us or you'll get shipped. Looking for the protection money. Yeah. And um, shoving them around. They're like clowns too is a funny thing about them. Right. So there's that and there's this, um, uh, German guy he's working for that who is also kind of weird. We don't really know what his story is at first, but he's well, definitely... Well, we don't even know he's German. He presents himself as Dutch. Exactly. So we, so we don't know what his story is, but there are all these different things going on around him. So we don't know who kills his wife because he walks into uh, to his apartment, the watch is gone, and his wife has been strangled with a stocking. Yes. Um, so that's kind of becomes the central mystery of the book at that point on or at least yeah and then everybody who comes by the hotel they live in their hotel apartment this is another one of the unreal qualities and unreliable narrator is that everybody says to him the place wasn't ransacked your wife's body wasn't there or the police come by and it's perfectly put away and there's no body and other characters accuse him of having killed his own wife and been the one who did it and having no memory of it. So right. that's an open question is who, who did this murder? What happened with the murder? Is, exactly. Exactly. Is so that's another, that's another thing about that's very, you know, untraditional sort of thing where it's not just a, a murder mystery, but it's a question of what really happened, you know, and he can't even, you know, be sure that he didn't do it. They didn't black out and do something off tour because they would constantly be in fights yeah. and shoot, you know, constantly be drunk. But it's at these points that, you know, 
really good writing in this section. Uh, I love how he talks about the perfume disinfectant that they use at the, uh, the gold factory, the, the shop, which is manufactured by a stink bomb company because it's the only <laughs> thing that can cover up the odor of stink bombs. There's a lot of nice touches like that. Um, and it all leads to a chase, as you were uh, saying, through like a whorehouse and then through a mission flop house. It's a bizarre, it's something like out of a silent comedy where he's like going from one very identifiable place to another, like a very kind of comedically broad sort of place. Yeah, but it, everything keeps getting more darker and more abandoned till he almost falls to his death on a broken fire escape because it's so dark in the alley and he doesn't realize the steps have stopped. Do you remember that part where he's got mm-hmm. a cap? Yeah. yeah, no, it's a very good sequence and it's very weird. Um, like I say, but it's it's a strange chase sequence because it just goes from one place to the next. You know what it reminded me and of? It, it yeah, was well, something out of Mickey One, is what it. Yes, me. that's a good. That's very good for comparison. Absolutely, like the Arthur Penn film Mickey One. Um, I totally agree with that. And then the sequence ends uh, where he hears this song, this hymn, right? Yeah. And the dog who's been chasing him. The dog's name, I guess, is Perito, right? They never say specifically what his name is. Perito is just uh, means puppy. Dog. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that's what he's called. So he shows up, and then he starts. It, through Todd's perspective, starts singing along with the hymn. And then later on, he sees the dog again, re- then, repeating the hymn the like he's trying to remember it. <laughs> yeah. So this whole sequence is great. And I think everything up to around the middle of the book, when they end up in Mexico, works really well. And there's a very specific turn in the book because um, Alvarado gets him back to his place and convinces him hey, I'm not mad about the watch at all. I think you're a shrewd young guy. I respect you. I think you should come in with me and be a, you know, get rich off gold smuggling. I'm going to send you down to Mexico and you're going to get involved in this operation, which uh, Todd falls for. Um, at this point, there's like a little bit of like a Jim Thompson choose your own adventuring going on where... Well, it uh, starts to get Raymond Chandler syndrome really bad. Yes, that yes, that's, that's what I'm looking for, yeah. Go someplace and get hit on the head and knocked out by somebody and get a bad explanation for it afterwards and then go to another place and there's another person. Yeah, well, before, before it even gets to that, because you're right, that is the biggest, that's kind of the biggest disappointment is that it ends up going that way. Uh, Dolores, who is the uh, Alvarado's mistress, Ward, whatever, yeah. <laughs> Ward, um, you know, comes in and tells, yeah. he's, Alvarado has told Todd, don't trust her, you know, don't trust the thing she says. And he leaves the room. And then she comes in and tells him, you're being set up. You're in danger. You know, you need to get out of here. Don't trust him. And then she leaves and Alvarado comes back and says, okay, are you going to come down to Mexico or not? And it's literally like, a, if you choose to go to Mexico, turn to this page if you choose not to. Um, and then, yes, that's when it becomes a sequence of just kind of convoluted, you know, events one after another, which leads to him getting cold clocked in Mexico with a great description that he could feel the gizmo's swift change from gold to brass, which is a, a, a neat yeah. thing, you know, where he's like, you know, he's feeling the thing go sour for him. But unfortunately, I feel like that's when the golden gizmo itself goes from gold to brass from that point yeah. on. Well, this is, this is a, a, a question I had for you. There's the big change in this book. And from here on out, we're going to talk spoilers because you have to talk some of it. The gold smugglers, his German boss and Alvarado, the seemingly Hispanic gentleman who is uh, 
who he's stolen the watch from. Those two characters know each other and are working together, and they are former Nazi black marketeers who are now being employed by an unnamed Central or South American government to continue smuggling gold. And so it takes this detour into Nazism. Again, it reminded me a lot. There's a lot about this book that reminds me of The Grifters, you know, about a small-time con artist sort of being destroyed by, uh, by the women in his life. But then there's like a Nazi twist laid in it. Thompson goes too far in his books a lot of the time. It's one of the things that's memorable about him. It's one of the things that's hard to defend about him. The you know, sexy Nazi uh, experiments, the titillating Nazi sex experiments in The Grifters, right, is a really weird chapter. Uh, this really strange, surreal digressions in Savage Night. The guy who gets torn in half by the shotgun blast all of a sudden in Population 1280 and then becomes like a book about engineering race riots. Everything with Doc Ashton's son in The Killoff, who's a guy who's planning to murder his own dad and rape his own mom is like very vocal with both of those characters about what he's going to do as he's building up to that he like rapes another character who's gotten hooked on heroin the entire second half of the getaway that's left out of the movie where they get trapped in this uh like unnamed central south american like hellhole town thompson's books go too far frequently right and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. I yeah, say. I was going to say, do you like when he goes too far? And do you feel like, for me, I feel like the Golden Gizmo gets lost because it's sort of like weaker faints at mm-hmm. going too far in the way these other books have. There's a bit of the grifters in it. There's a bit of the getaway in it. You can see how it blossoms into those things, but it doesn't go too far. It doesn't go far enough. I sort of felt like, what do you think of when he goes too far? And do you think the Golden Gizmo needed to go further or that my analysis of that is wrong? Too far isn't far out enough. R.I.P. Tommy Ungerer, I would say. Uh, No, I agree. Um, I I like that ending of The Getaway. I think it's amazing. I really love that. Um, But yeah, the uh, Holocaust victim nurse from the Grifters is obviously something that just definitely goes too far and it feels tasteless in a way that I, I, I did think of. I mean, obviously Donald Westlake, when he adapted the, um, the grifters into a movie, left that out entirely yeah. uh, for good reason. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I, I immediately thought of that when it got, when the word Nazi even came up in this book, I thought, Oh no, he's going back to world war two stuff for the background of these characters. Um, it's just, it, in the, in this sense, I don't think it's a question of, becoming, you know, a question of taste or a question of going too far. I think it's just a question of this feels convoluted that we now have to accept that Todd just happened upon this house with this guy who's involved with the dude he's working for, uh, that he just happens to run away with this watch. Just everything becomes like... And that guy immediately in his head hatches a plot to fake... I don't even know what. That's the thing is you sort of go through it and you're like, I don't even remember who's doing what. For what. I agree. It's, it's, a Raymond Chandler, it's a Raymond Chandler problem for sure, where it becomes less about the characters and the kind of the psychological intrigue going on and a lot more about getting from A to B and then how he's going to get out of it. It's about guys talking. 
it's the kind of thing you don't want to have to complain about because it gets complained about so much, but guys talking forever when they should just fucking kill him. You yeah. know, and you just like cannot believe how long these scenes are drawn out. And yeah. then it's just going to be, he gets away from that guy and gets the drop on that guy, gets away, and then he gets captured again. And literally becomes, you know, he gets captured, he gets put in jail. A police gets officer grabbed. gets him, and then he gets let go. It's, it's literally scene after scene of somebody getting the drop and then him getting let go yeah. over and over. And exactly. And you can't believe for a second that he's getting out of these situations. And when the cops, you don't want to make a deal with him, you can't believe what a sweet deal it is and like how, how much leeway they're allowing him to get. And these are kind of things that, you know, you wouldn't mind if you were still engaged in the story, but it just starts to feel lumpy at this point. And then the twist is, is that his wife hasn't been murdered at all, that she's working with his boss, the guy who's pretending to be Dutch, but who was actually a German black marketeer Nazi, right? I guess not even a black marketeer. He was a Nazi working for the Nazi government, importing gold from the black market. And their plan is what? You know, their plan, (laughs) something in his plan for setting them up is, I don't know. And the young ward, the Dolores uh, Chavez, turns out to actually be good and she's along for the ride somehow after he's saved her from being buried alive naked with the dead dog like it's just even when you go to put it together it has that Raymond Chandler problem of a totally Byzantine conspiracy and when you try and put it together you're like ugh, it's just better off to not try and put it together I will enjoy this book more if I don't try and put it together. Isn't that fair to say? I think that's exactly, I think that's on the nose. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And uh, at the point too, when the, it's revealed that the wife has faked her death, that she's alive, but you're just so exhausted from all the characters. There's a whole subplot. I should mention first that uh, I really like this character, Aildale Aarons, this uh, bail bondsman. Great character. He's a great character. And I, I'd love, to, I'd love to think that Thompson would put him in more books like as a recurring character, but knee bail, call Airedale, right? Yeah, um, so good. <laughs> he's cool. Uh, however, there is a whole subplot about him uh, being forced for political reasons to surrender Elaine, the wife, uh, to the courts for all her, you know, uh, her transgressions Maybe, with the yeah. law. Yeah. Um, and when he, she's missing and he assumes she's been killed, he goes and finds uh, a junkie and pays her to pretend to be her to take her to court. It's this whole thing that's like, why are we bothering with all this? You know, it's this whole yeah. other subplot that just doesn't go anywhere. And it's just like, also is this going to pay off somehow? It doesn't make any sense. He shows up with a hotel detective to the hotel room. And he's the character because he's been tasked with finding Elaine. He finds the hotel detective. They go into the hotel room and her body is missing. And he thinks, oh, she's been stuffed in the incinerator. He's like the one who cracks the case to begin with, which is why he's paying a junkie. It's just one of those things that... that where yeah. where is Elaine staying during all of this? How is she fake? Also, the way she's been killed, she's been strangled to death with a stocking. And of all the ways to fake a murder, like that's a grisly kind of death, too, you know? Yeah. And it sort of feels like, I don't know, uh, there's so much of it that's implausible. And that goes against my experience of Thompson, where Thompson is sort of uh, brutally plausible. 
You know, I think that mm-hmm. so much of what's affecting about Thompson is the like straightforwardness of everything, even when it combines a bunch of different subplot threads, like he does in the grifters or the kill off that is taking a bunch of subplots together. Each individual strand of those subplots is like thuddingly clear is like, you know, gut punch clear. And there's a lot of this where I just don't know what anybody's plan is and what they're planning on doing. And it relies so much on coincidence. And that's why I think it's important to complain about that, but it's true. I think that's why it's important too, to point out that this was written before uh, the killer inside me and the grifters and those other books is that he's clearly, this is clearly early work. He's clearly stuck in a lot of the tropes of the, the crime fiction genre. Yeah. Uh, He has, you know, he uses phrases here and there like, she had a bust like a cemetery angel and her face looked about as stony, you know, and it's like, yeah. hmm, that's a little bit more. And the character of Elaine, like Marie Windsor in The Killing, is, you know, like a standard sort of femme fatale, just kind of, you know, yeah. pushy and, and, and horrible. Um, but to what end? You know, like, it doesn't seem to affect Todd at all. Yeah. She seems to tolerate her. And, the, you know, it's, it's implied at one point that one day you're going to end up killing her kid, you know, like one day yeah. she's going to push you too far. And it's but like, why? He doesn't seem bothered by her at he all. He seems fine with it. He seems to completely tolerate her and he's a complete uh, pushover when it comes to this stuff. Um, so she never really pays off as a character either. And by the time her death, uh, her fake death is revealed in the last chapter of the book, it's you're exhausted from all yeah. this, you know, characters walking in on an, a, a tidy room and uh, Airedale thinking maybe she might be put in the incinerator and, you know, her being replaced by somebody else. And Todd thinking, you know, it being suggested to Todd that he might have killed her. You're just exhausted and you're like, I don't care that she's alive. I don't, I don't really care yeah. where this but, is all headed. But at the same time, it's too, and it's, it feels, the second half of this book feels squandered in some way. You're exactly right. Because she's such an interesting character. The way they're described as meeting is he's seen her at some point in a silent comedy that's terrible except for her. And everything she does is hilarious as like this comedic actress. She's full of like pratfalls and funny gestures and shit like that. So then when he runs into her um, in some, he's doing some con and she's at a house and he sort of meets her in this context where she's already a problem. You understand why he's interested in her because he paints her as this uh, charming charming enough to be memorable in movies type who drinks too fucking much. And he creates a very sharp portrait of Elaine and the appeal of her. And you're right that a lot of the time, the description of she was a problem and she was going to be a problem for him, the sort of uh, narrative editorializing doesn't match up with the sharper dramatic writing and character writing of the characters, right? Right. And she's also described, you know, they go through like a series of psychiatrists, you know, to try to like, you know, uh, get their marriage to work, to get her, you know, uh, to a better state you know, of health. And they describe her as a gutter drunk, you know, somebody who is not actually an alcoholic, but just drinks, you know, to be, to be a worse person, I guess is the yeah. implication. She's described as a virtual maniac by one of them. Yeah. And it's all the stuff that sounds like, wow, it sounds like a really interesting character. Um, but it's all for, she's just going to get pushed to the side of this story. You know, we're not going to see her but again. There's that the great end. scene where she manipulates 
him in the cab into getting to get the booze. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Sort of turns the cab driver against him and then placates the sort of explosive situation she's created. He, what happens is she's like, let's stop at a liquor store and get a drink. And he's like, no way you don't need me more. And they get in a fight and the cab driver's like, Hey pal, you know, keep your hands off. Stop yelling at that woman. Keep your hands off of her. And she's like, oh, no, he just got out of prison. He just needs a drink, but he doesn't want to do it. If you take us to a liquor store, it'll be just fine. And we'll all calm down and nobody has to call the police or be angry. And the, you know, cab driver does it like reluctantly on her sake. But she's just manipulated the situation. It's a great scene. It's a great scene. But there's not... It is. All that stuff from the early part of the book is very promising and if uh he had made todd be more like elijah cook jr in the killing you know yeah. somebody who is completely under her thumb uh then you know that would be an interesting story to follow but again like we're saying here he doesn't really he kind of just brushes this stuff off you know he yeah. seems to just kind of let it run you know just kind of let it go well the, and continue the marriage yeah the, the book just wanders towards something that's also rare for Thompson, which is a completely unearned happy ending where he hooks up with the hot young Latina who's also revealed to be incredibly moral. She's a uh, informer working with the American government to catch these bad guys essentially because her brother was killed by the uh, corrupt government of the unnamed country that uh, Alvarez is working with. And so she turns out to be a real angel you know, mm-hmm. and there's a happy ending where she stands by uh, Todd even to the end. And then, you know, the bad guys get their comeuppance. Elaine shoots the German guy with the idea she can keep the score for herself. And as soon as she does that, the police surveillance that's been watching obliterates her with Tommy guns. You and know? I think we should mention that transpires over what, three sentences? It's so shoot in. Yeah. At the end, when the feds show up and 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 blow her away, and everybody's happy, that you're really like, uh, huh? Like it's what? just one big shrug of a. That's it. <laughs> no, I actually skipped a sentence accidentally when I was reading it for the first time and didn't realize anything that was going on. Yeah, I had skipped a sentence because it was right at the end. But even that last chapter, again, not to go back to the well, it's what has he asked the police to do in order to convince. Elaine and the German to do what? Like, I just don't understand his plan. I don't understand what anybody's plan is. I don't understand <laughs> how he knows what's going to happen and how to make it work out. It just, you, you can't, you can't follow it to coherency. Yeah. It makes you realize that the, the real squandered, you know, narrative is that the watch should have been the MacGuffin right? The watch that he steals yeah. initially. We should have followed that around more. It should have led to things uh, easily, you know, could lead from one circumstance to another. Uh, Elaine being one of the best characters in the book should not have been, you know, fake killed so early, you know, she should have stuck yeah. around and had more to do. Um, there's just a lot of things. Like Yashe should have impacted him more. Her yeah. Should have been a bigger effect on him than it is. Yeah. The app, once Todd goes into this cycle of getting, uh, caught and kidnapped and uh, arrested, you know, it just becomes this cycle of following this kind of diminishingly interesting character, you know, going around uh, to, as you said, this kind of unearned ending that he should have been killed three or four times by now yeah. or in jail, but somehow he's got, he's managed to get away and all the villains have been punished. Yeah. What, what do you think of this book in the context 
of 50s crime fiction right at that time. In, in 1953 to 1955, you have Talented Mr. Ripley. You have Charles Wilford's The Pickup. You have Down There, which was uh, adapted into Shoot the Piano Player, the David Goodis novel. I uh, mentioned The Big Caper it's from the same time. You have For the Love of Emma Bell, which is the first uh, Coffin Ed Johnson and Gravedigger Jones book. And then you also have Blackboard Jungle and Cop Hater from Ed McBain. What, what do you think of this book in that context? Well, in that context, I think you really appreciate the huge change in crime fiction between the 40s and the 50s, right? Um, when, you know, in the 40s, Hollywood's churning out all the uh, the Dashiell Hammett and the um, uh, Raymond Chandler stories, and, you know, everyone has that. And film noir, obviously, is huge, and it, it suffers from all these, you know, very familiar staples that it keeps going back and forth to. Um, you know, the, crook, the, the, the detective or the crooked cop, whatever. And Thompson obviously bring, Thompson and others bring in a very, very uh, intriguing psychological remake of the whole thing and, you know, shift the focus to something that's a lot more interesting from a literary perspective that the Golden Gizmo doesn't fit in with that, you know, is just makes you realize that it, it's more of a child of the 40s crime fiction than it is of the 50s. Yeah. Because it's still suffering from those problems with the femme fatale and, you know, uh, the, just the, the Mexican uh, uh, conspirators and Nazis, the subplot, you know, all these other things that are just thrown in for seemingly no reason. Yeah, um, it feels a step behind a lot of the other work. It feels, it feels 10 steps behind Killer Inside Me. Which was mm-hmm. published. Oh yeah, absolutely. It feels it feels very hard to uh, in the context of Thompson's own work. It it feels um, like a step backwards. But at the same time, I'm really glad I read it. I think that this is this is not one you should uh, avoid by any stretch. Uh, I just think it's it's halfway there. Yeah, it, it, filters, it filters out, I think, is the thing. I really think the first half of this is really fun and, and good. Like, and you know, it's Thompson. really good. It's very yeah, good. I think the reason he didn't want to abandon this is that, you know, he came up with this idea of the talking dog and liked to play off of that kind of weirdness. I think he just couldn't come up with enough things to match that weirdness throughout the book. Yeah. We should mention, too, that the dog eats Alvarado's face off. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> a moment that I felt like, is he finally going too far? Also, the sock, what is it called? The sock with the glass shards in it? There's a oh, big, yeah, where he, yeah. Uh, is it just called the, the eagle's claw or something like that? Mm-hmm. Where he hits the guys in the face with it. And that's a very Thompson-esque description. It's essentially like a little sock with glass in it that's designed to just cause little cuts on these guys' faces the, uh, to get the dog's bloodlust going. And their faces yeah. get red with blood. And it just sounds so brutal. It's so much like, again, the, the bag full of oranges, the Bobo Justice scene in the group. Yeah. This it's definitely some back alley off. stuff that's unsettling, for sure. Yeah. It feels like this book got torn apart by him and reassembled into the grifters and the getaway to me because it feels mm-hmm. like he tore it apart and realized no this is that's the stuff i actually wanted to do with this book. You well know? in the first half of the book too there's a very thompson sort of structure going on where you have the two the man the woman and then the crime guy you know the the, the gangster mm-hmm. character mm-hmm. 
you see that constantly in a lot of his books, you know, where it's that central relationship uh, that's forming in After Dark My Sweet, for example, you know? Yeah. Um, and that there's going to be betrayals, that people aren't, you know, who they say they are and things like that. Um, but then it just adds so many characters and so many convolutions onto it that it loses that kind of centralizing. Um, and it, it just kind of falls apart, I think. You know, yeah. like, I, I agree. It's definitely an interesting read for uh, Thompson people. I think more people should talk about it just because it is an interesting, it is interesting for those scenes that you're mentioning, uh, for the scenes that would become more fleshed out in the grifters or, you know, uh, that where he'd find ways to make it more thematic and interesting and be able to complete uh, those ideas from beginning to end, you know, and not just lose them halfway. So I definitely don't regret reading the book. And uh, yeah, yeah I, I, I'm glad we did. It was an interesting choice. Yeah. We were going to go with Cropper's Cabin originally, but we went with this one. And I, again, I'll probably get to all of them. I only have three or four left that I haven't read. So I, I would mm-hmm. get to all of them sooner rather than later. Um, There's no reason not to read all of his. They're short and he didn't write a ton. So Yeah. And I yeah. would also say it's interesting. This book has a lot of the Thompson hallmarks too. This is a book about alcoholism and alcohol, which is incredibly important to his career, uh, to his work, to his thematic career. It has the biographical touches that could only come from somebody who's worked that world. And you mentioned he was a door-to-door gold salesman. He was also a criminal bellboy in real life. When he was a teenager, he got involved in a drug dealing and pimping ring where he was running out of a hotel and like destroyed the reputation of this, of a hotel uh, as like an 18 year old. And that's a subplot in Golden Gizmo, the corrupt bellboy stuff. And that's mentioned. Yeah. And also obviously it informs one of his best books as well, Looking Babe. Yes. And that stuff feels like when you read Thompson, that's, that's, one of the things that always feels very palpable in it. So it does, it's a very Thompson-y feeling book ultimately. When I heard it was Talking Dog, Magic Watch, you know, it weighs more than it possibly should, title The Golden Gizmo. I thought he had written a science fiction book, but this is a Jim yeah. Thompson book through and through. It's a Jim Thompson Yeah, it is. You can't, yeah, no one else could have written this for sure. Yeah, and it even has his... Um, the way that misogyny is a theme, racism is a theme in his books, and specifically the relationship between America and Latin and South America and Central America um, is something that runs through his work and sort of those cultural divides, those racial cultural divides that are sometimes incredibly harshly expressed are in this. Like the uh, just that little... Uh, vignette when he's escaping out of the bathroom while down in Mexico and the beat cop catches him and is essentially uh, gets to stick it to him because the beat cop had been a migrant worker and had got arrested in America for vagrancy and he essentially gets a chance to turn the tables and arrest Todd Mm -hmm. for vagrancies like I learned this word in America and it's this very harrowing story about that's just, again, it's a couple paragraphs. It's an aside that's about the vile treatment of uh, Mexicans in America. Of Mexicans that is a good sequence. That is yeah. a good sequence. It plays into the theme I'll, that he'll we'll come back to later, obviously, just of the what makes you know a, a law officer so horrible and you know and mean. 
Yes, again, it's how about they do how treat somebody. Yeah. And again, one other thing that we should mention, uh, his most famous books, Population 12, Later and Killer, Kill Inside Me, are about sleazy, sleazy sheriffs. And Jim Thompson's own dad was a corrupt, sleazy sheriff who was forced out of, uh, out, of, out of his job and sort of left in disgrace. Or I think it was embezzlement. I don't think it was over, you know, rape, murder. Um, no. <laughs> but it was, uh, that's another thing that runs in his work is that sort of the dark corruption lurking right behind officers of the law. And so it's, it's very Thompson-y. He just, it's proto-Thompson, it's what it is. He should have he not gotten it published, probably. He probably it's not working. <laughs> the people who said it's not working were probably right. But I'm I'm really it's it's some Thompson stuff and I I I like the Thompson stuff I can get. No, I agree. Is anything more to say? Should we move on to the, our desserts? Oh I had we should we should move on to the desserts, which are the Oh yeah, if you have something else to, to say then please Aaron. go ahead. I had a question for you. I because I was when I was looking up his uh his his uh oeuvre his filmography and biography and bibliography. He wrote a bunch of TV shows. Have you ever seen any of the TV shows he wrote, like McKinsey's Raider or Kane's Hundred or Convoy? None of them. I'm curious. There, you probably doesn't have his voice at all, and, and, but I was just curious if there was that. He also, uh, he also has, um, he did an Ironsides novel based on the TV show. Uh, that I've always been curious about. And I've never seen that for sale anywhere. Have you? Do you know anything about it? I've never seen it anywhere. I've never seen his novelization of The Undefeated either, the John Wayne Western, which yeah. I've been very curious about. Yeah. I've never seen it for sale, no. But I was, if listeners, if you are familiar with the Ironsides, is it called a continuation novel when it's based on a TV show? Yeah, on a specific episode or, or spinoff novel. Yeah, spinoff novel. There you go. An Ironside spinoff novel written by Jim Thompson. I mean, what the fuck has that got to be like? It probably <laughs> is nothing like Jim Thompson. Is probably the answer to that question. Well, yeah, all that stuff was much later in his career. Obviously, when he hadn't had uh, too many original books published for several years. So yeah, it is. I think he was probably brief, picking up the paycheck at that point. It's a brief career. It's a really brief career. It essentially runs from 52 to 64. And then, and then that's, that's it, you know? Um, not really. He can Yeah. With that giant, with that giant spurt of 12 books published over three years. Yeah. Yeah. It's very curious, very curious. And of course, of course, you know, Thompson, you know, it's, it's all about his second life, you know, in the early nineties when people, you know, started adapting his work into movies and you know there's a whole new appreciation with black lizard publishing his stuff yes that's what you know that's when it became a, you know he became the real dime before, store we, before we do dessert all right best thompson adaptation oh um i mean i love the grifters i think it's a great movie i think it's yeah a great adaptation um i would i would go with that although after dark my sweet is fantastic as well i love yeah. the direction i love james foley um, they're both terrific. I don't know if I could pick one. Uh, um, Coup de, de Torchon is also a great yeah. movie. Terrific I'm going movie. with the two French, Coupe de Torchon mm-hmm. and Serre Noir. I think those are the two. As much as I love Grifters and After Dark, my sweet. I think that, I think that Coupe de Torchon with Isabelle Huppert, I believe that's 1980 probably, Bernard Tavernier, and Alan Corneau, the interesting uh, journeyman crime film director, did, I think, the best version of thompson humor with siri noir 
I think mm-hmm. is the one that gets the desperate humor of Thompson better than any of the other adaptations. I agree. I think he's been well-serviced uh, for the most part in film adaptations and movies not directed by Michael Winterbottom. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's been, <laughs> or or yeah. not starring Stacey Keach. Those are the other. I've never, never seen that one, but I've heard it's not very good. Try not to make Killer Inside Me, I think, is what we learned. It's weird, though. I think The Getaway is probably the Sam Peckinpah film. Uh, Steve McQueen's Sam Peckinpah film is probably the most famous of his adaptations. And I think it's down there with the very worst. I think it's down it's, there with the kill-off. <laughs> it's the one I always forget to call a Jim Thompson adaptation because I think of it more of a, as a Sam Peckinpah, yeah. Steve McQueen movie. Yeah. And they throw out so much of the book that it's it's hard to connect it. It's hard. It is. And again, this is before the big renaissance, you know, where, you know, Thompson wasn't necessarily respected. It was just, you know, a property that they were like, hey, we want to make this crime movie, this action movie. And at that point, uh, having just come off Junior Bonner, I think uh, Peck and Paul was just like, I'm doing something with McQueen again to keep my career afloat. Yeah. So um, I do like The Getaway, but I agree it's not, not Thompson-y like those other films are, does not get Thompson. Yeah, yes. I also just think it's not as good a movie as, as, a, as the others. I, I would, I'd take Grifters and Coupe de Toshan over it any day just as a movie. Oh, I agree. No, no, yeah, no, I agree. Okay, so John. After, so after our listeners have breezed through the 100 pages of the gold, golden gizmo and the unsatisfying ending, what do you recommend them to try out next that will hopefully give them the sense of what this novel, of the best of this novel and leaves out the worst? I think a great dessert, which is uh, for this, would be Patricia Highsmith's The Sweet Sickness from 1960. Love that book. Great. I think it's, uh, what's her best? She has so many good ones. I was about to say it's her best and then immediately walk that back. It's about a guy who's essentially created in his mind an imaginary marriage. There's a woman, he's, he's got a good job, he lives in a small town by himself, he's very well respected, he's accumulating a lot of uh, money and people like him, and he's got this house that he goes to that he's filled up with domesticity that he's built for this woman he's going to marry, that he's decided he's going to marry. And over the course of the first half of the book, you come to realize she is just somebody who barely knows him and they're like friends at best. And she probably would like for him to leave her alone because she's married to someone else. And it is an incredibly psychologically sharp novel the way that Thompson's best work is so incredibly psychologically sharp. And I think of her as Highsmith and Thompson as being the most contemporary of crime writers. They really changed crime fiction forever. And when you think of what crime fiction is now, they're the two that invented it. And I think that I can see a lot of them in each other. Um, and I think there's something about the sweet sickness that I think is her most Thompson-y book, uh, in some way. And it's hard for me to articulate why, but I don't know. It just feels like if you don't want to read more Thompson immediately, this would be a good thing to show you what Thompson is supposed to be at his best. It's like the sweet sickness 
and um, yeah, it's it's good, and it's and it's emotionally brutal the way Thompson gets emotionally brutal, and it's yeah. dedicated to her mother, which I love. <laughs> to my mother, this book about a imaginary marriage and the psychopath and you know suburban desperation. I love that book. It's my favorite. Is probably Tremor of Forgery, but yeah. I, I love that one. Um, I, I once tried to adapt it as a screenplay oh, yeah? and my, and my main problem with it was I was considering, should I split the personas literally as two different people? So the audience isn't aware that it's supposed to be the same person it was sort of what I was toying with for a while, but that presented way too many problems that it, I just couldn't get past it. Yeah. I also, for, for a title that's so amazing, I, I couldn't see using that title. As a movie, I couldn't see a movie with that title, and I felt like it yeah. wasn't going to work. Uh, I felt like that's a great book title, but not a great movie title for some reason. So many of her books are like that, like The Two Faces of January or A Tremor mm-hmm. of Forgery. These Tremor are of Forgery. <laughs> phenomenal book titles that even the talented Mr. Ripley, like that's not a great movie title. I like I like uh, Plan Soleil much better as a title. Yeah, yeah agree. A movie title. I can see that. That would have been a problem. No, with Highsmith, that is a problem. But great book, excellent choice. Uh, I, I, am, I, am, I am not going to resist the disappointingness, the badness of uh, this book with my recommendation uh, because it's a movie that I love. I'm not sure it's a good movie, though. <laughs> uh, it uh, was released around the same time that uh, Thompson's books were getting uh, turned into films in the, uh, the so-called uh, day noir, the daytime noir um, era that the grifters and After Dark My Sweet was coming out uh, with uh, all the John Dahl films and the Carl Franklin films. Okay, so the early um, 90s, you're saying. Early 90s is what I'm trying to say. It came out in 93. It's called Romeo is Bleeding. <laughs> directed by Peter Medic, written by Hilary Henkin, starring Gary Oldman and Lena Olin. It is a weird fucking movie. Would you agree with that? Bananas. That movie was, look, not to, to go what you don't want to hear, that was a sexually formative movie for me. <laughs> Lena Olin in that movie, I feel like I wouldn't be me without what Lena Olin did to me watching yeah. that film i would not be myself it's no she's uh yeah yeah you don't hear anyone talk about that movie anymore yeah, no it's been kind of forgotten um i lo- i love it I, I used to have the poster for a long time in college i had it up yeah um uh i think you know things like her prosthetic arm you know being taken oh. off during the sex scene Fucking are, are are the sort of offness that you know i was really hoping the golden gizmo would have more of um, but but everything about it, even Gary Oldman's bizarre performance, kind of you know has an offness to it that's intriguing. And again, yeah. I don't know if I'd call and it good. Like the golden but... <laughs> era of Gary Oldman has not been restrained in any way. Like right, we're golden... talking yeah, professional, yeah. true romance era Gary Leon Oldman, but even era, yeah, further than that, yeah. Um, so that's what I thought of. I did. I don't know if it's a great pairing, but it's one that I definitely thought of when I thought about the uh, positives and the flaws of Golden Gizmo. Yes. Yes. I think it's a very similar thing to Golden Gizmo where I would have a really hard time telling anyone 
who wasn't a Thompson fan to read Golden Gizmo, I would have a really hard time saying to someone point blank, watch Romeo is Bleeding without a bunch of caveats, without trying to test the waters first. How do you feel about severe brunettes in stockings? Are you, okay, you're interested? Watch this movie. <laughs> I would say, too, I was leaning towards Chaos from the Crypt with, like, the chinless man and, uh, you know, the, all, all the kind of weird humor going on in this book. And Peter Medic directed a Tales from the Crypt, so we're on the right track, I think. Yes, Yes, it has, the Golden Gizmo has the unsteadiness of a, uh, like, average artist going out of their comfort zone, which Mm -hmm. is what's interesting about the Golden Gizmo, is it doesn't feel like a talented artist experimenting and failing. It feels like an average artist trying to get a little weird and not being in control of it. And that's the way Romeo's Bleeding feels. I'm with that. Yeah, I agree. Awesome. <laughs> Although interesting, it would be, you know, Peter Medic towards, you know, well, later in his career, obviously he'd been around a while for, at that point, uh, but was kind of like doing a, you know, kind of becoming a crime movie auteur with the craze and with Let Him Have It. Yeah. Um, it was kind of, you know, getting into that territory, but they were also like very kind of sensitive, realistic films. So with Romeo is Bleeding coming a, a couple years after that, it was like, huh. Interesting yeah, it's, direction. <laughs> it's bananas. That yeah. should be mentioned about that movie. It's bananas the way the talking dog and the chase through the burlesque house and all of that is bananas in Golden Gizmo. And it's sort of sustained, same level sustained bananas. It's a regular movie a lot of the time that then is very weird for certain stretches. Yeah. And very impactful. It has that, it has that Thompson punch to it. The violence is violent and the sex is uh, memorable. Very memorable. Yeah. <laughs> um, for next month's Pulp Fiction, we will be doing The Glitter Dome by author Joseph Wamba. So if you want to read along with that, he's best known as the author of The Onion Field. And I have never read a single thing by him. Have you, John? I've read The Onion Field and that's it. So we are going to dive right into it. I don't believe the Glitter Dome is uh, based on a true story like The Onion Field. It is not, right? No, I believe it is a novel. Original fiction. But So I'm looking forward yes. to reading it. Uh, sort of a, a different uh, tact on crime fiction, because uh, Wamba was a former cop, and he is famous for writing very, very realistically about police officers and the ugly, ugly, ugly side of police work. Although it is a Hollywood crime story, and Thompson did do his own version of a Hollywood crime story. Yes. So there is Thompson that connection. Thompson is very L.A. Golden Gizmo is L.A., and Grifters is very L.A. So uh, looking forward to it. John, is yeah. there any more we needed to say for our hearts to be full of Thompson? Only I'm, uh, you know, as much as I wanted to say despairingly about this book, I'm really excited to read The Ripoff and The Roughneck and Cropper's Cabin and The Alcoholics and all the other ones that don't get brought up a lot just to see. Yeah. Not to find, not, not even to find, you know, the, the, the missing, you know, the hidden gem. Yeah. Not to find the golden gizmo, but to, not to follow my golden gizmo to the, to the best un, unread Jim Thompson book, but rather... Oh, you know what I'll say, too? Can you imagine an adaptation of this movie, how they would present the Golden Gizmo? It would be like, you know, this golden light effect, you know, yeah. that you would, like, follow around. It'd be terrible, right? 
there's no there's no good adaptation of this movie yeah I will <laughs> just say, thinking, how would you present the golden gizmo in a movie the uh this movie <laughs> the had an effect on me though i immediately after i was done reading this i read the kill off again immediately and sort of went through it and now i'm like a quarter of the way through hell of a woman i just immediately wanted to pick up thompson and read it again so just like the ones i had on hand that i hadn't read too many times i immediately grabbed again after reading this I can see that. The very least you'll get from this one is you want to go back and read the good ones again. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Although I'm not sure nice. the kill-off is one of the good ones. I sort of was like, oh, maybe I need to give the kill-off another chance uh, because of because of what it does well and how, how uh, original its uh, uh, structure is and sort of the ways in which it tries to be experimental. So, yeah. at any rate... Well, Thompson's great. Let's Thank you, everybody, Thompson for listening. Time, Let's talk about Tom. We'll do another Thompson soon. It's, it's the Thompson could. cast from here on out. <laughs> I'm with it. Thanks, everybody. Okay. Have a great night. I'm Golden Gizmo.